This is Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pub. A podcast. Red Pub Pub. From Red Hot Publications. Red Pub Pub. Red Pub Pub. This is Red Pub Pod. I'm Richard Eller. We are working in a series right now about the Western North Carolina furniture industry. Certainly one of the reasons that people know about Western North Carolina, for that matter. And today my guest is a a big reason for that. Since 1989, his company has gained international fame for the furniture it has produced and brought to market. I'm talking about Mitchell Gold. Welcome to Red Pub Pod. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell me about what... What you really like about furniture? Why you you devoted your life's work to it? Well, after graduating college as a history major, and I just say that because <laughs> I want uh, people to know out there that that being a history major, liberal arts is a really really great background. But upon graduating, um, the dean of the business school, who I got to know very well, recommended that I go to work at Bloomingdale's, or at least interview at Bloomingdale's. I never heard of the store really. But I went and spent a day there walking around. And at that time, in 1974, it was truly one of the greatest stores in America, greatest retailers in America. And I met with some people there. One thing led to another. And I was hired into the uh, domestics area, blankets, pillows, bedspreads, and so on. And I did pretty well there. I really enjoyed it. I loved being on the floor and selling, I liked seeing all the different people. I liked touching merchandise. I liked developing merchandise and style trends and so on. And then after a couple of years, I ended up in the furniture department. After, after being in domestics, um, let me just back up and say, after being in domestics in a suburban store where I had all of the categories, table linens, pillows, um, towels, everything, uh, and then going back to the New York store in Uh, in human resources and then going to the lamp department, then I ended up in the furniture department. And what intrigued me about furniture was there I had an opportunity to really affect somebody's way of living in their total home. It was great selling people or buying and selling people a fantastic towel. It was great making sure somebody had fantastic napkins or pillows. But to really put together somebody's living room or bedroom, I started to realize as I was talking to customers and to the salespeople what an impact it has on the way somebody lives. And if you can create really comfortable furnishings so that when somebody comes home at the end of a busy day, they're looking at their furniture and it welcomes them. I came up with this thought that it really welcomes somebody. And in fact, when I started our furniture business, kind of came up with the buzz line, uh, when a home has been furnished successfully, just walking in the front door is like getting a hug. And that's, you know, I think that's what is the difference between somebody who's a natural, innate retailer or merchandising person versus somebody who's an accountant. Um, And that's kind of, there was an emotion that I felt from furniture that I hadn't felt from anything else. And so all that time at Bloomingdale's in all those different areas really prepared you for where you were heading. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, when I when I left Bloomingdale's, um, I went to work for a furniture manufacturer that I did that we did business with. Further preparation. <clears throat> Further preparation. I went to work for a big furniture manufacturer, um, and in many ways that did prepare me because uh, it, it really, you know, I'll, I'll always remember uh, the VP of Sales, Art Thompson, who's one of the most extraordinary human beings out there, I mean, just an extraordinary salesperson and merchant and a people person. He walked me around the factory and he said, see all these people? 
they depend on you to sell. They depend on you to keep furniture, furniture going through this factory every day. And at the time, I was handling uh, large accounts in America like JCPenney, at the time Sears, Levitz, um, I forget there's another, there's another – Wix in, uh, in, uh, in, in Montgomery Ward. I was handling these huge accounts. It was huge volume, the, a big part of the company's business. And he said to me, you know, you've got to make sure that every day you're selling more so we keep stuff going through. And that really you know, hit me. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, yeah. I guess that's one way to look at it. You know what? I have often said I'm too naive to even know what pressure is sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't – you know, but and pressure is an interesting thing that um, some people get very frazzled by it. They get paralyzed by it. I've been the kind of person that just takes it in stride. Um, I just say, OK, I've got this thing to do. I've got to get it done, make a list and go out and try to do it. So is that invigorating to you, yeah. opportunity you see there with that? How, how, how do you look at that? You mean uh, the pressure point? Yeah, or the yes, yes. Uh, well, <laughs> I've been under pressure my whole life, and as I've often said to people, um, I mean, I was well prepared for pressure and stress by growing up in the 1960s as a young gay kid um, at a time when homosexuality, quote unquote, was considered a mental disorder. It was against the law. So when I realized that I was gay, and this it was this horrible, horrible thing at 11 years old until I was 21. I mean, for 10 years, I lived in this constant fear that I would be found out, that I would have to go to a, a mental institution and whatever. And somehow I got through it. And then by the time I was 21, and it was the early 1970s, I hit a lucky spot. I went to see a psychiatrist, asked me what he could do for me. And I said, well, actually, I'm gay and I want you to cure me. And he looked at me and said – and I, and I always remember this guy was, seemed so old to me. And now I look back and he was probably 50 years old. Um, and he said to me, oh, no, I, I can't cure you, but I can teach you to love yourself. And then he told me that the American Psychiatric Association was in the midst of changing how it categorized homosexuality. And it was no longer going to be considered a mental disorder but a natural part of a human's being. And <clears throat> I remember – when that happened, thinking – I just as, – as I'm talking now, I can remember being in his office and hearing that and thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm like being born again. I can live my life because it was so, you know, closeted for so many years. And it took me a couple of years to come out to family and friends and so on. But actually, Bloomingdale's was the opportunity for me because when I went to work at Bloomingdale's, uh, one day on the selling floor – uh, in the mornings, we would have to straighten up the floor and do different things as assistant buyers. And the buyer from the department next to me came over and said, oh, there's Richard Chamberlain with his boyfriend Martin. And my jaw dropped because Richard Chamberlain, when I was 11 years old, I remember just being so excited for that show to come on TV, for Dr. Kildare to come on TV. And it was about the third episode I realized, whoa, wait a minute. I'm really excited to see Dr. Kildare. Not so much the pretty nurses, but Dr. Kildare. And it started to be like, oh, my God, I've got this problem. Well, now fast forward you know, 13 years later and Richard Chamberlain is on, the, is on the Bloomingdale selling floor buying pillows and blankets with his boyfriend, Martin. And I just stood there and watched. And I realized that here were two guys that were smiling and shopping for their home and living what one might consider a normal life. 
And it was a huge turning point for me to think. And, and I remember the, the assistant buyer, Jones, said to me, oh, well, everybody knows he's gay. It's just not public. And I thought to myself, oh, so I could be out and gay in New York City, but my parents and friends don't have to know back in Trenton, New Jersey. So I started to come out and, um, and it was great at Bloomingdale's because my the vice president of my division was gay. The senior vice president was gay. There were, I, all of a sudden, I started to realize, oh, my gosh, there's this whole gay uh, uh, community here. So um, let me jump off and live my new life. So in, in that environment, it's no big thing. It's, it's – Yeah, it, it was no big thing in that environment, I would say. But it was still a point of – I mean, like going back home to my parents. I mean, when I came out to my mother, she was not excited about it at all. She mm-hmm. was in, in kind of the I, – I call – to me, there's two different kinds of bigotry towards LGBT people. One is uh, religious bigotry and then the other is country club bigotry. And I, I know coming out, my mother's first thought was, oh, my gosh, what are my friends at the country club going to say? I had to get her to get over that. My father was much more accepting. Uh, and I think my father was more accepting because he realized at a certain point that if he didn't accept me, and welcome me into the house, especially if I had a date or a boyfriend, that he was going to start to lose me. Because the reality was uh, New York to Trenton was an hour and 15-minute drive. I used to go regularly. Then it got slower and slower, less and less, uh, to where it was once or twice a year. And I think my father realized that if I don't figure out how to what, what this what this gay thing is all about, I'm going to lose my son. And that's such an important thing for so many parents that I come in contact with, that they start to realize, oh, I'm losing my child. And then they have to make a decision between what their friends will think, what their church will think, what their synagogue will think, what their imam will think. They have to make a decision what's more important to me. And the exciting thing for me over the years is I've seen so many more parents make the decision that their child's happiness and good health, that their love for each other was more important than the bullshit that they hear at these other places. Right. Excuse my language. No, that's, that's okay. We're a podcast. We can do <laughs> okay. that. Um, so, therefore, the relationship matters. Oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's it really paramount. Does. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And, you know, I often – well, after I wrote the book that I did, Crisis, about gay teenagers or, or LGBT people when they realize that they're gay and what happens to them. And that's why I called the book Crisis because you do feel a crisis. And some people are 11 years old and some people are 44 years old um, that go through this crisis. But as I, and when I promoted the book, I was traveling the country a lot. And inevitably, I would see you know, parents would come up to me at the end of the talk and talk privately with me and say, you know, I don't want to lose my child, but my husband is not accepting. Or the husband would come and say, I don't want to lose my child, but my mother's not accepting. My wife is not accepting. And I would say to you that you know, for me in my life, one of the most rewarding things is talking people through that is talking people through that and having them communicate to me years later. There's a, a kid in town uh, who's no longer a kid. He was 13 when I first came in contact with him after he had tried to take his life a couple of times by cutting himself. And now when I see his pictures on Facebook, you know, 23 years old, happy, smiling, he's just so full of life. And when I first met him, he was not so full of life. He was really questioning his life. And um, you know, talking people through things like that, there's a correlation to me. You know, making people comfortable at home is not just the furniture, but it's what their family life is like. And, and does a kid on a Christmas break from college 
who's closeted and gay, does he feel happy and welcome coming home? Or are he worried that his parents are going to make some derogatory comment? Or, he, or is he worried that his parents are going to talk about, you know, laws against transgender people and traditional marriage and all of that kind of stuff, which is a very not-so-subtle signal to their kid that they're not accepting and they don't understand. And, and that's the other thing that I found in life is a lot of people just don't understand. And if we can take the time to talk to them, educate them, and really share with them the harm that they're causing. You know, a lot of these folks, they just don't know the harm they're causing. So how did that lead you to Taylorsville, North Carolina? I mean, if there's any place that might be considered intolerant of what you're talking about, it's a small town like that. Well, naivety, again, uh, plays a big part in it. I mean, I moved down to... um, to North Carolina in 1987 uh, from New York with my boyfriend, Bob Williams. And we just moved down here and bought a house and moved into a neighborhood. And then we, and then I was working for this big furniture company, but then left it. Um, and then decided that we were going to start our own business. And in doing that, we were going to build the factory, buy a factory, and then we, we came into this set of circumstances because of my brother knew somebody that worked for this small factory in Taylorsville. I went out and met the people. They were delightful. We worked out a deal where rather than building a factory, we could buy into a factory in a partnership. They were running at about 50% capacity. A factory can't be profitable at 50% capacity. It's got to be at least 80 or 90 or 110%. So we had this idea for upholstered dining chairs and eclectic tables, glass tables with metal bases or all glass tables. And um, we worked out this deal. And honestly, it was such a pretty ride from where I lived to the factory in Taylorsville that um, I, I loved it. I didn't think anything of it. I was very much a country boy in New York City. I had a house in, at the beach in the Hamptons. I used to go out. Friday night to Sunday night, then it was Friday morning to Monday night. Then before I knew it, I was only going into the city one or two days a week uh, and um, really enjoy living in a more peaceful environment and no traffic and no crime. So when I moved down and went to Taylorsville, everybody was just very nice. The funny thing that happened is after Bob and I started and we we, we came out with a bang. We, we sold a lot of product very quickly. We built production up very quickly. So we worked for two years nonstop, we, no vacations or anything. And then we went on a vacation to, uh, to St. Thomas. And I always remember my, uh, our business partner saying to me, yeah, uh, people in the factory don't understand why you and Bob went on vacation together. They would say things like, <laughs> like um, gosh, I just don't understand Mitchell and Bob. They work together all the time. Why would they want to go on vacation together? And then this woman at the end of the line, one of our inspectors, May was her name, um, she said to them, well, those two boys live together. They're homosexuals. <laughs> and then the word spread throughout the, the factory of you know, 70 people or so. Um, and you know, I think it goes to the point that when people know you and know you're a good, decent person, even though the churches in town might have been teaching that we were um, sinners, an abomination, immoral, ruining the fabric of society, they heard that at church. But they hear a lot of things at church that they leave and then come home and go, well, you know, that's not really so. 
So we bought into this factory and, and it was in uh, like May or so. And during the, the summer, we were running full blast. And I was out there one day and walked into the factory. And I said to the plant manager, why don't you turn the air conditioning on? It's so hot in here. And he looked at me like I was crazy and said, well, factories aren't air conditioned. There's no furniture factory that's air conditioned. We start early in the morning, around 6 in the morning, and we end at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. So we're not here in the dead of heat. And I was like, wow, I can't believe this. And I went to Bob and said, you know, this is the craziest thing in the world. I mean, we have people out there making furniture, a lot of it white, sweating like crazy. And you have these big fans. We have to do something about that. And we didn't realize that we could actually go to the bank and borrow money and put air conditioning in. But instead, we squirreled money away, came next spring, air conditioning installed, and then we had air conditioning. And the other thing we did that was kind of interesting uh, I was walking around the factory, and they had, like, this crappy coffee. And the factory that I had worked for before, they had the worst coffee in a coffee vending machine. It was 30 cents. I always remember this little cup. It was hot as could be, and it tasted like dirt. And I said to the management, you know, God, this coffee is really terrible. It's just not nice to do to people, to give them something like that. And I said, and I heard that you don't allow people to have, like, their own coffee makers. Oh, yeah, we don't want people using our electricity. So when we owned this factory or owned part of it, I said, you know, I'd really like to just put bun coffee makers around because at the time, bun coffee maker was like the big premium, the best way to make coffee. And let's ask people what kind of coffee they want us to buy. We'll use that and we'll charge what it costs us. It costs, it basically costs a nickel a cup. So we did that. And those two things changed the course of our factory. It quickly became apparent our manager came to – our plant manager came to us and said, boy, we have the best people applying to work here. The number one upholsterer from such and such company, the number two sewer from such and such a company. You know, it's all the number one and two people wanted to come and work for us because we were treating people with dignity and respect. And I think, you know, when you have somebody in your home, of course you would give them a decent cup of coffee. Of course you'd put the air conditioning on in the summer. Did you realize how revolutionary for a furniture factory that mind frame towards employees was? Not really. Um, you know, I just come from a home where my parents were gracious hosts. Uh, Bob's parents were nice, good people, gracious hosts. When I went to visit, um, I don't know. I just came – well, I, I, and I have to also say that when I worked at Bloomingdale's, I worked for extraordinary people. Marvin Traub was the chairman and CEO at the time and then my vice president. There was a real caring about employees. And that's one of the things I did notice. Well, I noticed that in general as a furniture buyer. When I visited a couple of furniture factories down south, I called it plantation mentality, that these owners, they really didn't care about anything. They didn't care about their employees. They didn't care about their customers. It was all about them and making a profit. And the company that I had worked for, uh, the CEO and I were once driving around and I said something to him about how dirty the factory was and the coffee and stuff. And I remember in his horrible accent and he would call me Mitch and nobody calls me Mitch except my mother when she's mad at me. Um, he'd say, Mitch, we are a profit-driven company. We can't be worrying about all that other stuff. And I just thought to myself, well, that's really crappy. I mean, what a way to live, like in a dirty factory and stuff like that. So it sat in my mind. And then when we started the company, we just – we wanted – we, you know, our, the real thing was we wanted to treat our employees with respect, our customers with respect. And I had an interesting thing early on. I was uh, 
seeing the buyer at JCPenney, Ray Dykes, who I had sold to before, and um, showed him the product. And he said, well, Mitchell, um, you know, we are currently buying things that are similar to that from your old company, and I have a sense of loyalty to my vendors. And I looked at him and I said, you know, Ray, I appreciate that. But first of all, our product is different than I'm showing you. Better quality, lower price. But more importantly, my obligation is to make you successful. If I can make you successful, that's the most important thing in my day-to-day. The second thing is I've got to keep my factory workers employed. And I've got to have a factory that is a decent place for them where they can come every day to work in dignity. If I do those two things, then I am entitled to make a profit. And I will tell you, I will only take a profit after that. And it was one of those things that just kind of came out of my mouth as a, uh, some people say, a natural salesperson. And he just looked at me and he said, well, I guess that about settles it. We'll buy from you. And then we proceeded in the next couple of weeks to figure out what he was going to buy from us. And what he did buy from us was 3,000 dining chairs and 800 tables. And that before you even start production in a factory, plus the 2000 that we sold to Levitz a couple days later, uh, that really gave us a great jumping off point. So, you know, for me, I always say to people, do the right thing, and hopefully the good karma will follow. Because that's not the priority with which your competitors look at the world. Employees happily coming to work is not high on their priority list. Right. I do think that's changed. And I would say to a large degree, especially in this area, you're the one that changed it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I um, I went to see uh, Congressman Ballinger years ago when I was – when I had become active in uh, more political things. And I called and made an appointment at his office. I went to see him. And a lot of times when you do that, you don't see the congressman. You might see a chief of staff or you might see a staffer. When I went in, to my surprise, they were like, oh, Congressman Ballinger's waiting for you. And I walked in and I shook his hand. Now, keep in mind, I had been a pretty dedicated Democrat and he was a conservative, quote unquote, Republican, which I'm still trying to define. Um, and when I walked in, he stood up and shook my hand and said, it's really nice to meet me. And I just thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. And I started to explain who I was. And he said, I know exactly who you are. He said, my constituents your competitors know exactly who you are. You are single-handedly raising the standard of living in Alexander County and Catawba County. And he went on to say all the things we were doing. And uh, it, was, it was very rewarding and exciting. And we ended up having a really, really nice relationship. And, uh, you know, all his time, I had a really nice time chatting with him. And he, he changed over time in his opinion of um, what he at one point derogatorily said about Congressman Barney Frank and, and uh, gay people in Congress and the military. And he came to change over the years. It's interesting that the, the whole idea of treating workers better, which kind of seems like a natural now, um, was not a calculation on your part. It's not a we could, I could sell Bloomingdale's, I think it was you said, um, if I tell them this story, which was true, but right. still right. it wasn't part of the, the, the design with which you went into making furniture. It just was a natural outgrowth, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I think – well, part of the magical synergy between Bob Williams and myself where we, we had the same attitude of the kind of factory that we wanted to have. 
And uh, one day he came to me and he said he had read this book. Um, I'm just trying to remember who it was. It was Ben and Jerry's, the Ben and Jerry guys and, uh, and the Smith and Hawkins guys. And he was telling me about those books and the ethos that they created in their companies and the excitement that they had and then the success that they had. And I had been following some other uh, things as well. Um, I knew Mickey Drexler, who was running J. Crew at the time, and some other, and, and of course Marvin Trout. But Bloomingdale's was a um, a great example for me. And we just kind of came to this conclusion once we I mean, we were only at the factory at this new factory that we bought into for a few months, but we kind of realized that we can really change things around here and just do some nice things. And it won't cost us a lot of money. And then the other huge thing that happened is a month after we had started the business, I was flying up to New York to uh, visit some potential customers. And in the olden days, in 1989, on the, I bought a New York Times, a paper one, to read on the plane. And on the front page, there was a story about how the ozone layer was being depleted. By the end of the article, it said that the furniture industry in North Carolina – was one of the biggest abusers of the environment in the country because of the foam produced and it emitted CFCs in the air, which is the element that deteriorates the ozone layer. And by 2011, the ozone layer was going to be in serious trouble unless we started to do things. So I got off the plane, again, the olden days, went to a phone booth, used my AT&T credit card, called Bob. We didn't have an 800 number. There's nothing like that. And I said, my God, Bob, you won't believe this, but we are in this business that's hurting the environment. And I, you know, in college, uh, I'd become aware of the environment. I went to the very first Earth Day that happened in America. I went to the one in Philadelphia and said, we just, we, we can't do this. And he said, this is extraordinary. I just saw a manufacturer who's making this new foam and he's claiming it's environmentally responsible. It doesn't emit CFCs in the air. I said, get a hold of them. So we got a hold of this foam manufacturer who was thrilled because everybody that he had talked to didn't care. It was a little more expensive. Other manufacturers didn't care about the environment, didn't want to pay the money for it. And we started buying it and we started making our product that way. And that's quickly how we started to promote ourselves. And I will always remember I was at a Crate and Barrel at their location in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this couple came in with their kid. He was seven or eight years old. And I heard the salesperson saying to this couple about our chair because I was standing near it so I could hear what salespeople were saying. And he's talked about the environmental thing. And this little kid says to his parents, I'm getting tears in my eyes thinking about this with such joy. Uh, he says, oh, mom and dad, that's what we're learning in school. We have to take care of the environment. And bingo. They bought. But more importantly, my customer, the crate and barrel buyers were like, we have to do business with these people. You know, we have to do more business with these people. And that became, you know, one of our very biggest accounts too. I guess it tends to show that if you, if you do good things, people gravitate to that. I think so. I think kindness is, um, is, is just really important in life. I mean, what, what kind of person doesn't want to be kind? And there are plenty of them. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, um, I don't know, for me personally, I I just couldn't be happy if I was doing mean things to people. Now, is your activism an outgrowth of that? Yeah. I, um, I, I guess from an early age, I had done charitable things, collecting money for UNICEF or I'm trying to remember other things that I did as a, as a high school kid. Um, my parents were not wealthy. They were upper middle class at best, and but they were 
philanthropic and things that they they did do. So it was just part of my life. But I, you know, then college and for years went on, well after college. In college, I was doing things then too. But then I was just busy working. I had a career, you know, just trying to get by. And then in the nineties, uh, when. Bill Clinton announced that he wanted to admit uh, gays and lesbians into the military and there was this big backlash. And then they had this don't ask, don't tell law that came in. Uh, I remember visiting friends in New York and they were talking about how the reason that they didn't want gays in the military was because of the ick factor and, oh, you know, I don't want to serve next to somebody that's gay. And I thought, well, that's probably so, but where does the ick factor come from? But then what I really saw living back down here and listening to local radio stations, reading the local newspaper was it was the Baptist ministers that were really against it. And they were saying things like, you know, those gays are sinners and an abomination. They're going to ruin the moral fiber of society. You can't be in a foxhole with them. And just thinking, gosh, I remember in the 60s watching TV with my mother and hearing George Wallace on TV saying segregation now segregation forever, it says it in the Bible. And I looked at my mother and said, does it really say that in the Bible? And she said, not in our Bible. And um, it was this eye-opening thing that, well, there's certain types of Christian religious people as well as Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Muslims and others who have this feeling, but there's also this whole other bunch of people who don't, who are uh, people of faith who, who care about that. So I started to get – I started to inquire and get a little involved and knew about this thing called the Human Rights Campaign and went to a dinner that they had in Raleigh. And uh, the executive director uh, had by now started to hear about our furniture company and asked me if I'd be on the board of directors. And she flew down to have dinner with Bob and I. And she said, um, you know, I really we, – we need people who understand marketing. We need people who – can obviously give money as you guys are making more money, but we really need some of your smarts too. And I had done some other work uh, earlier on as a fundraiser for the United Israel Appeal and for some other uh, work when I was in college. So um, they and they heard about that, and one thing led to another, and I went on the board and had a, a, a real ride with them on that. So it was just kind of a natural, and I was starting to have more time. Um, more time in the sense that we weren't working eight days a week. We were working six and a half days a week. And I'm, I used to play golf when I was in high school but don't play golf anymore. So it was for me a Sunday afternoon was I, I was happy to do some things, write letters, call people and stuff like that. Because other businesses, other furniture manufacturers would have told you how on everything that you told me so far, you were wrong to do so. Right. Taking a stance in society was bad for the business. Doing good by your workers was bad for the bottom line, the coffee, everything. And yet you've gone against all of that. I guess you didn't ask for any advice, first of all. First no. Of all. Well, you know, what What happened is Bob and I were not making a ton of money, but we were making enough money to live. And it, And then it really became apparent to us that what we cared most about was being happy. And what would make us happy is – going to work at a happy place every day and having happy customers. And if we were, you know, not as profitable as somebody else, like my former boss who said we're a profit-driven company, just as long as we were making money and paying people, we, we, we did not have this aspiration to become uber wealthy. And I think that is just – it's a personal thing. Uh, so 
for us, it was more important to take a stand. But then the other big thing was, what started to happen is, people would come up to me in the community and say things like, um, this one town official in Alexander County said, you know, I just have to tell you that I really appreciate learning about homosexuality, LGBT people from you because I have a daughter who's 11 years old and I don't know if she's going to be a lesbian or not. I don't know if she is a lesbian or not, but I do know this. I will never lose her. And previous to talking to you and learning from you, hearing you speak out publicly, if my daughter did come out to me as a lesbian because of my religious beliefs, I would have had to disown her. And now I will never have to do that. And, you know, when people say things like that to you, um, and I've, I've had a good amount of it here and throughout the country, that's about the most satisfying thing you can do. And Bob and I really cherish those times when people say to us that we, we help them change their lives. Because there's been instance after instance I came across of you helping the community and the community really appreciating that fact. So in, in large respect, you're coming to and I remember this article, I think it was in the New York Times or something, the belly of the whale, they refer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you coming here, you have made a real difference in not only people's economic status, you know, the jobs, right. paying them more, but also helping them to understand there's more out there than what they're getting on maybe a Sunday morning. Right. Yeah, for, for sure. I think that um, doing things in the community – now, you know, in a, in a, a, we've done a lot of things in the community that don't have anything to do with LGBT people. Um, uh, the scoreboard for the um, – Well, the scoreboard for the, <laughs> the, for the high school. For the yeah. high school. Um, we really enjoyed doing because it was this old dilapidated board that people were looking at every day or at all the games. And, and that's – and I think that's the other thing is it's important to know other people's perspectives, other people's priorities. I'm not a big football fan. But in our community, for our employees, their kids' sports activities were super important to them. And we realized that early on. So we would sponsor football teams. We'd sponsor baseball teams, soccer teams. We built the soccer field in the community. Uh, there was any given Saturday with, with my English bulldog, Lulu, when we would go visit all of our teams. It was the Mitchell Golden, Bob Williams, Junior Bulldogs, the Pee Wee Bulldogs, and different teams. But that's what makes a lot of these folks happy, and it started to make us really happy, too, and excited to see their kids. And every day I see kids that were in our daycare center that are grown up now and working in the company or out of college and so on. So it's, it's uh, you know, that, that's, what, that, that's what being rich is, not the car I drive. And that can't have been an easy road because I had heard, and I don't know if this story is true, about the ministers in town taking out an ad in a paper against you or the company or however that was. Well, they didn't take out an – they didn't – I'm trying to remember if they took out an ad or not. They didn't take out – I don't remember that, but I do remember this kind of funny story. Uh, when the marriage equality battle was really heating up, I had learned that there was going to be a meeting of – Baptist ministers at Lake, I think it's called Lakeview or Lakeside on 127 in Hickory. And uh, they were bringing in these speakers from Raleigh who were like heading up the anti-LGBT marriage thing. So I went uh, with this fellow who worked for me at the time on faith issues, he, not, not for the company, but on this organization that I started called Faith in America. So I went and we didn't really know how to get into the auditorium. So we ended up going in the back door opened up the back door, went and sat towards the back. 
And they had these speakers, and they're going on and on, and they, they had the 10, uh, I, want, I can't remember how they said it, but it's like the 10 most wanted gays in North Carolina that are ruining the moral fabric of society. And there comes on the slide Mitchell Gold, and she starts talking about me. <laughs> and then somebody in the audience recognized me, and there was all of a sudden this hush throughout the whole thing. Um, but forgive me, but let me tell you this whole thing. So, you know, they continued talking, and afterwards they kind of gathered on near this. It was like a lower stage, and I just walked down and walked into the middle of them and say, you know, if you all have any questions, now's a good time. Let's just talk about it. And I just started answering questions. I ended up having several lunches uh, with people afterwards to talk about it, to, to talk about being gay in general. And, what, and the thing that I really had a chance to talk to these folks about was the harm that they are causing to innocent, vulnerable young teenagers. And that's, that, that's the real pity is, I, you know, I don't think that there's a Bible verse for they know not what they do. And they don't know what they're doing to, the, to their kids. When you tell a 14-year-old kid that you are a sinner because of the way God created you, when you tell a 15-year-old kid that, you'll, that you should never be married and have the wonderful intimacy of not, not just sexually but um, you know, intellectually with somebody, emotionally with somebody, that, oh, no, you can't have that. And that for me was one of the holes of my life. When I was a teenager, my brother who – on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being straight was an 11 and always had this girlfriend or that girlfriend and happy. I knew I could never have that. I would see my parents in their marriage and how my father would dance with my mother or kiss her when he came home and thought I would never have that kind of happiness. And then being able to get married, that was like, wow, I never thought I would ever have something like that. And, um, you know, but you, 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 I would say this. You cannot tell a young innocent, vulnerable kid that because of the way they are born, the sexual, sexual orientation or gender identity that they feel within themselves, you can't tell them it's wrong. It's just not right to do that. It's harmful. And that's why, that's why the suicide rate amongst uh, gay kids, LGBT kids is so high. The suicide rate amongst transgender is even is, – is quadruple that. It's horrible. And for any adult – to use transgender people as a political football is disgraceful and a very special word. They're deplorable. And I thought starting a furniture company would would be a gutsy move for you. But going into a, a Baptist church where you're named by, you know, you're, you're in the top ten right. and taking that on, that's guts. Yeah, it goes back to that naivety. <laughs> <laughs> The, well, and the other gutsy thing is you went into the business of making furniture. Now, granted, it's upholstery and, and, and upholstery, I guess, really never left. But you went into the furniture business at a time when that wasn't necessarily a good – that might not be considered a good business move because of all the things happening internationally. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, when we started in 1989, <clears throat> shortly thereafter, there was a recession. It was the first President Bush's bad economy and, um, you know, it was a recession. And what I learned that was super interesting, in fact, at our very first market, um, my parents had these very good friends who lived there and he had been a salesman for years, not in furniture but in apparel. And I remember saying to him, gosh, it's like the economy is so bad. I don't know what I'm going to do. 
And he said, people are always looking for the better mousetrap. They're always looking for something new. And the advantage that we had being a new company was that I, I learned to go in and say to these cust potential customers, all these people you're buying from, their stuff isn't selling. I got the new good thing. And we did have new good stuff that was exciting. And f there are always people buying, even in a bad economy, even in a depression. There are people that have money and are buying something. It might as well be what I'm making and doing. And then um, shortly afterwards, then this exodus started of moving product out of America and moving it overseas to be made. And we had to make a huge decision whether we were going to keep our factory in Alexander County or if we were going to start to move product overseas. And Bob and I made the decision that we would, first of all, really focus on having a lean operation, being as efficient as possible and maximizing everything. And then the other thing is we would just work on a shorter margin and pray that the volume made up for it. And it, and it worked. And we were able to keep our business going. And I think you know, this kind of goes to the goodness of the people in the community. The people in Alexander County and the commissioners and, and, and the potential employees, they never forgot that because the other, many of the other factories in town moved, moved their facilities offshore. And then when they came back, they, they had trouble getting employees. We were always the one that were getting the best employees. And from a customer side, you tended to make furniture better than it needed to be. Yeah. Better than a lot of your competitors. Right. Which is also, I guess, a selling, a selling point. It is. And, you know, the, that comes from my ego. I couldn't stand when other companies that I'd worked for, a couple of other companies, I'd go to visit the stores and meet the salespeople, and they'd all be complaining to me about quality. And I, Bob and I just said to each other, I said, you know, I don't ever want to go into a store or go to a distribution center where you're meeting the warehouse people and have them telling you a crappy quality you make. So we, we – and, and the – the wonderful thing about starting a business is we could decide what quality level we wanted to be at. Did we want to be the most expensive? Did we want to be the cheapest? You know, where did we want to be? And instead of looking at it that way, we just said, let's make a piece of furniture that is going to last and be good. Not, not something, you know, and in furniture, they were off, they, people would often say, oh, we have to make something so it's out of date in 10 years so people buy more furniture. And we were like, no, we don't want people to um, – have to change our furniture because it's not holding up. We want them to change it because they're just not interested in it anymore. Maybe they want to move it to their second home. Uh, but we want our furniture to last. So we really set out to make furniture that would last. And our first dining chairs had a 25-year warranty on them. Nobody made a dining chair with a 25-year warranty. But we came up with a way to do that so we could do it and obviously be able to stand behind it. You know, it was really great coming up with the price points that we did. And one of the, the the great part of it was we were never embarrassed about our price points. We we're like, oh, you know, this is this sofa is going to be fourteen ninety five, and I know that's expensive. We're like, this sofa is fourteen ninety five because we've made it this way, this cushion, this this arm pad, whatever it was, and it really resonated with people. And we found our 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 niche of retailers to sell to, who could appreciate that price. They had customers that could appreciate and afford it and would relish it. Now, how did it work out that you ended up with your furniture on quite a few television programs, films, that sort of thing? Well, early on, one of the uh, things that we did, I, I did all the selling at first. And rather than hiring salespeople to – more salespeople to help me, I hired a public relations person. 
was one of our first hires. And I understood from my days at Bloomingdale's the um, value in good public relations, good editorial coverage. And then uh, as the years went on, we had an incredible publicist, Eloise Goldman, who worked for us. And she started getting tuned into set designers. And set designers are their own little – set decorators are actually called – have their own little community. And it would be – see, the thing about us is we were dependable. If we told you you were going to have a piece of furniture on May 1st, you had it on May 1st. In fact, we have banners throughout the factory that say consistently good quality, consistently on time. If you're consistent, people know they can count on you. They, they call you and count on you. And the set decorators knew that they could count on us because if they had a show and you know, they needed something by you know, February 14th, they needed to have it. The show had to go on. They, they, they couldn't afford not to. So, so we just ended up getting more and more. I think you're probably referring to the thing with The Good Wife, uh, the CBS hit mm-hmm. show. We did a good bit of furniture for it, and Beth Kushnick was the, is, was the set decorator for it, who's a wonderful human being. And she and I were talking, and she that was just at the time that she had a Twitter account and Instagram, and she would put pictures of the set on. And she was getting this incredible reaction. They were saying, well, where can we buy this? So, of course, she was saying, go to the Mitchell Golden Bob Williams store. Her bosses were saying, whoa, you're getting like thousands of people asking where to buy this. Why don't we have a CBS, um, a um, Good Wife collection? And we did the first licensed collection for a TV show. And, but it was an unusual show in the sense that it was a law office. It was modern. The home was modern and comfortable. It fit into our design aesthetic very easily. And then we started to really develop product for them. And it was really exciting because we would often know what was going to happen in the show before it was aired because we, we knew that Kalinda needed to have this sleek wing chair in her apartment because it was going to be the last shot of the, of the season. And um, so it was fun. And I, got, and I got to meet all of them too. Oh, that's yeah. That's a nice fringe benefit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, I had, I had met Christine Baranski earlier because we were doing an, an event at a store that we sold to up in New Canaan, Connecticut, and I always remember the owner uh, calling and saying, "Can you guys come up a little early because an actress wants to meet you, Christine Baranski?" And at that time, she had been in. She had come off of the show Civil, which I thought was incredible. And I said, yeah, of course. And we went early and met her and had a great conversation. She had her house filled with our furniture. And um, so I've been able to maintain a good relationship with her too. And she's not the only one because for your Who We Are book, um, Judith Light does your introduction. Yeah. Well, Judith Light's parents and my parents were best friends for years growing up in Trenton, New Jersey. And then they all moved to Palmaire in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so Judith, Judith and I are a little bit of an age difference, um, but uh, I reconnected with her, gosh, about 25 years ago, and uh, she's an extraordinary person. In fact, I just spoke with her uh, last weekend, and we ended up talking for an hour and a half. I mean, she's such a very special person. Uh, so she wrote the foreword to the book. Tell me about the name change, because that's another instance where you share the stage. Yeah. Well, so when we started the company, we were going to call it Design Line. And when we went to trademark the name, um, we couldn't get it because there was another company named Design Line, actually out of Statesville and then one out of New Orleans. So uh, my attorney, Charlie Dixon, who's a very well-known attorney mm-hmm. in town, 
a really sweet man. He said to me, well, well, just call it Mitchell Gold's design line and that way you, know, you can have the name. And I went home and said, told Bob that. But I will tell you that in the back of my mind, I had this thing because for years now I had known as a young kid, my parents had Thayer Coggin furniture. They had Robert Sonneman lighting. Um, you know, I certainly knew about Givenchy dresses and Calvin Klein and, and names. And it intrigued me that there was a name associated with product. And what did that mean? And I came to really learn that a name – they, uh, a human being, it's their, their product is their values, quality, style, ethos of how it's manufactured. It, it could be any or all of those things. So I kind of thought that in the furniture business, there was no real designer name. There, there was no – there was a na- I mean, Henry Don is Henry and Don, but nobody really knows who Henry and Don are. So I grabbed at the opportunity and Bob was agreeable to it. Bob at the time was very innocent and sweet and shy. He since has changed. He's still sweet, but he's not shy anymore. And so we called it Mitchell Gold's Design Line. A lot of the companies and, – and with, with the other advantage of that was I knew a lot of people in the industry. From being a buyer at Bloomingdale's, it was the hottest store in America in the 70s. So people knew who the buyer was. Uh, and then I worked for this other big company, so I knew a lot of people from that. And then you have you know the directories in High Point and say Mitchell Gold's design line. And people say, oh, I'm going to go see who that is. And we had a lot of people from throughout the country that would come to our showroom that I had forgotten about, hadn't even thought to call. So it really served us well. And then as time went on, uh, after 16 years, we, we had a product that Metropolitan Home Magazine wanted to highlight in their Design 100 and the editor called me and said, uh, I'm going to send a photographer to photo- photograph you and the sexy Sadie chair. And I said, oh, well, let me check with Bob to see when he's available. No, no, no. We're just photographing you and the chair. And I said, well, but Bob and I are equal partners. Bob is really heads up the design. And this particular chair is really purely his design. So it really should be either him and the chair or both of us. No, no, no. It's Mitchell Gold Company. We want you. Because your name was Because my name was the only name. So I said, okay, and I told Bob, and he was fine with it because he was um, a a sweet, humble guy. And we went to the event they had in New York at the Four Seasons restaurant, the famous Four Seasons, and they give me the award, and I stand up and say, thank you, I appreciate it, but this is Bob Williams, and he really designed it, and I wanted to give him the shared credit. But incredibly, afterwards, as we were walking around, people came up and they were talking to me. At the same time, Bob was starting to think that, hey, this really isn't fair. And he was coming out of his shell. He was – the editors loved him. The customers loved him. He was my best salesperson. He was my best PR person. He was really coming into his own. And the next morning at breakfast, I said, you know, I'm just not comfortable with our name because a brand has to be honest has to represent something. And the brand, our brand name now is only half of it. And he said, yeah, I have to admit to you that I, I really have been thinking that because it's like, you know, my, my family is not getting to share in the success we're having like your family is, and I want them to. So I said, okay, I will take care of it. And then uh, went out and talked to some marketing firms, some advertising agencies, and talked about what kind of a name change we could have. And all of them said to me, well, you know, it's, it's a predicament because you really have a lot of equity built up in Mitchell Gold. And this one company that I really like, but they wanted to charge us $246,000 for a name change and a logo change and stuff. And I thought, wow. 
But my marketing guy at the time, our marketing guy at the time, Charlie Holt, he came into me and he had the Mitchell Gold logo. And then under it, he put a plus and Bob Williams. And I looked and I thought, I timed it. It took a second and a half to say. And I thought, you know what? That's what it has to be. That, that's what our brand is. And that's how we changed it. And it's, I mean, it's taken on a life of its own. It's now inextricably linked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll tell you, we had a, a big Sweet 16 party at High Point Market, had all of our customers, all of the media. And I had this big screen with this Tiffany blue box. And because uh, nobody knew this was going to happen. And um, this, the way we did it was the Tiffany blue box opened up and then this new logo came out. And this, you know, this goes to karma. I, a couple of editors in the weeks that followed called me and said, We're gonna, we need to do something about this. This is really good karma. You know, you, you're, 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 this is going to work for you. It's a little long, but it will work for you. And people, of course, uh, will, will, will shorten it and call it MGBW. You might call it Mitchell. You might call it Golden Williams. But, it, but, but people do see two human beings who have a design sense, a style sense that they identify with, a quality sense that they identify with, and an ethos that because, – because people know about the fact that we were the first residential furniture manufacturer to have a daycare center, that we have – we're one of the very first to have full-time medical staff on board at the factory so that people could get a physical, could get medical attention. You have to remember a lot of these folks, a, a lot of – Lower, middle, lower-income people don't go to doctors for one of two reasons. They're scared what they're going to find out or they really feel they can't afford it. We made it so that you could go – you know, if you had a, a cold or something, go to, the, go to the couple of nurses that we have on staff, the two professionals that we have on staff. Um, you know, so people know about those things that we've done. And they also – many of them know about the stand that we've taken and that we support – women's rights issues. We support homeless shelters. We've supported so many different things. Uh, that, that's, that, that's what our brand stands for. And when they see Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, whether it's in the community and thinking about, I'm going to buy that furniture or I want to go work there or, or a supplier says, you know, we, we've had suppliers who knock on our door and say, we want to sell you. The, you know, you're the kind of company we want to do business with. So it has taken on a good life of its own. Where do you see furniture going in the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years? Well, a wise man, <laughs> Warren Buffett, once said, furniture will always be here. People always need a place to sit. People always need a place to store their clothes. People always need a table to sit at to eat dinner. And when I heard him that he said something like that, I was like, wow, that's exactly it. Now, you could say, well, you know, the home of the future is going to be all built-ins and stuff like that. But even when you watch the Jetsons, they were sitting on chairs. <laughs> they had a lot of built-in stuff, and a lot of that Jetson stuff came true. But there, there's always going to be a place for it. And I do think that it has become more economical to make furniture in America versus overseas. I think the, COVID, the horror of COVID, one of the silver linings was all of a sudden people realized, holy Toledo, you make furniture overseas. When they have COVID, they, they're shutting down. You're not getting any, any product. You know, there's, a lot, there's, a, there's a lot of variables that go on, and there, we can make a real positive case for the future of the furniture industry in this area. The one thing I would say, and I have talked to the governor about this and other people in economic development – 
we can't be a state that is only trying to attract high-tech businesses. We have to be a state that's not just going after um, bringing in new business, but we have to be a state that brings in people to the state and people of every level. It's a noble profession to be an upholsterer, to be a sewer. There's, everybody has different aspirations. Um, I've often thought to myself, boy, if I could do it all over again, I would be an upholsterer. Work 40 hours, make a decent income, uh, but not have the pressure that I've had, not have the, you know, the constant when, – when, uh, and I, I was just thinking of an upholsterer recently because um, I met his son who's in his 20s uh, and what a nice, nice kid he is. And I thought to myself, you know, this guy, he, he had interests outside of work. He worked, made a living did other things, played golf outside. You know, there, there's more to this world than being an executive <laughs> for a furniture company. And um, we have to attract people of all different, well, all different aspirations, different uh, education levels. Not College is not for every kid. I mentioned that I was a history major because I barely got through college. Um, I did not like school. Part of that relates to my Michigas growing up gay and, and not being able and not being mentally stable um, and not being able to concentrate. I think I probably am ADHD but was never really diagnosed properly. Uh, so and, and, and I almost didn't go to college. I, w- I went to junior college after high school and after one year, the second day of my second year, I quit because I just couldn't stand school. Fortunately, my parents you know were, were good and they helped guide me and then I eventually learned, on my own because they said, well, that, that's fine. Go out and get a job. And I went out and got a job in a factory and then realized, well, this is not for me. <laughs> this is not for me either. Um, so I, I did go back to college and finish and I was lucky to get through and go to a school that could could work with me and understand me. Um, so, so everybody's different and we have to be a state that appeals. What's fabulous about this state is our weather. Now, today is a rainy, not so great day. But we have pretty mild weather year-round. And I don't know – I can't remember the last time we had an earthquake. I can't remember the last time we had uh, fires that took down acres and acres and acres. Um, you know, we've had some tornadoes. Uh, but it's – I mean, we had a, a bad windstorm on uh, December the 22nd. I know that because the equipment room for my pool got blown apart and all the equipment in it. And – that should be the worst problem I have. Uh, but as I looked around the state, around our area, you know, homes weren't blown apart. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of a lot to say for this area. Recently in the news, you announced that Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams will be going back to the Hickory Furniture Mart. Yeah. Yeah. What was the calculation in that? The calculation was. Um, well, unfortunately, we have too much merchandise that needs to go to outlets. <laughs> oh, and, t- tough problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it is not a good problem to have. Um, but our new CEO, Allison O'Connor, who's doing an incredible job, um, I mean, one of the things that she did early on was that we need an outlet strategy. And we opened up five outlets throughout the country. And part of the reason we need the outlet strategy is because we had been clearing out merchandise in our retail stores, in our 25 retail stores, and it really was not attractive. It was not something that made Bob and I happy. But honestly, I didn't know. It was at the point of my career where I didn't really understand the whole outlet business. So engaging, having Allison join us who had experience and things like that, when we hired her, one of the things 
I said is I want somebody with a proven track record in retail because we're a retailer. We happen to have a manufacturing facility. And she's uh, really developed this great strategy. So in the retail stores, we don't clear merchandise out anymore for the most part. And now we're doing it here. The Hickory Mart is really well managed. Um, they get a lot of traffic. The Lales do an incredible job. And uh, we think we can do a good amount of business there. That's an interesting perspective of your uh, a retail outlet. You just happen to have a manufacturing uh, facility too. Right. Uh, most Most wouldn't look at it that way. They would look at it the old way. Well, and frankly, that was what we did for uh, for years. We we were a manufacturer who happened to have retail stores, and then they became so big and successful, um, and we started to really focus on that. We don't we we don't sell to many retailers other than our own stores. We do some private some significant private label business, and we do a, a good contract business, but our business is really our retail stores. We, as a management team, shifted. And again, when I decided that it was time for me to have a successor and to move on, as we spoke with the search firm, um, I said, you know, we, my goal was really to find a great retailer who also could understand manufacturing. Our manufacturing business was running really well. So we didn't need that to, uh, we, we didn't need that to really get fixed, if you will. But we needed help in the retail business to really grow it. And mostly in our in a big part of that was our e-com business. You know, it's just a, it's a different mindset, digital marketing, a website, transacting on a website and so on. And it was a perfect time for us to bring Allison in and a perfect time for me as I was entering my eighth decade of life um, to take it easy. Because you're not retired. I'm not retired. I'm doing different things. Um, you know, I still participate in the business um, to different degrees, to much less degrees, and I have other outside interests. And with that, I want to thank you for taking some of your time to come talk to us today. I have time to do these things. <laughs> I had time before, but it was really, really nice to get to know you, Richard, and um, Professor Eller, and uh, appreciate being part of what you're doing. You will find in uh, Wellcrafted, the history of the Western North Carolina furniture industry, some of these uh, stories about Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams as a furniture company in Western North Carolina. But I want to thank you for doing what you've done for the furniture business in Western North Carolina. It's, it's a phenomenal, singular story. They have gorgeous furniture. You should take the opportunity, hopefully, to read the book, too, but also to uh, to go over and look at now at the Hickory Furniture Mart at what you have. Well, or go to www.mgbwhome.com. I knew I was in the room with a salesman, and, and you, you could make that work. So, I couldn't resist. Mitchell Gold, thank you very much. Sure thing. Bye. This has been a special furniture industry edition of Red Pop Pop. Red Pop Pop. A podcast. Red Pop Pop. From Red Hawk Publications. Red Pop Pop. Red Pop Pop. Red Pop Pop.